the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Now, last week I talked about how over the next three months we are hearing from St Paul's letter to the Romans, and I thought that was a good opportunity to spend a bit of time looking at St Paul, given that's his um, his grand letter, really. Uh, it's the letter which holds all his theology uh, as clearly stated as he could, uh, and the other letters kind of should be read in light of that. So to understand Paul, Romans is the place to go, and we're there for 15 weeks we have Romans, so we might as well take that opportunity. Uh, So last week I introduced St Paul, and for those of you who are not here, um, there are somewhere some uh, copies of my sermon from last week. They may be at the door, or they may still be in the office. And if you'd like a copy, just see me afterwards. But some edited highlights. Uh, The first thing to note is that Paul was a Jew, and uh, we keep thinking that somehow he stopped being a Jew and became a Greek, and uh, lots of people apply Greek philosophical uh, frameworks to what he writes and Greek uh, patterns of thought, Um, but he was never a Greek. He spoke Greek, he lived in the Greek world, but he was a Jew, and so he saw the world and understood world events through Jewish eyes. So that's the first thing, and it's an important thing, because we have strayed far from that worldview. So we keep trying to apply our worldview on Paul, a worldview that he would find puzzling, like this whole Jesus came to get us into heaven stuff. Paul would be, what are you talking about? Because that just does not fit with his worldview as a Jew. Um, The second thing I noted was that he didn't write all the letters that uh, have his name attached to them. Uh, We know that he definitely had nothing to do with Hebrews, and there's a few that there are debates about. But Romans is one of the ones that he definitely did write. I noted that his letters were written to particular people at particular times to address particular issues. Paul is not like the Gospel writers who actually did sit down and set out their account of the life of Jesus, which was for a particular community, but they knew that it would be used beyond that community. The apostles were dying or had died, and the story that they had told needed to be kept alive. Paul had no such intention. He was writing to particular people in particular places about particular issues, mostly people that he had lived among, to churches that he had founded. So his letters are mostly off the cuff, and we might describe them as robust. So he was not writing things that would be read as authoritative for the next 2,000 years. When we read them, we need to pay attention to who he was writing to, and why it was written, and the culture in which they lived. There's a whole lot of assumed stuff going on in those letters. He doesn't have to spell it out, because he knows about it and they know about it, just like when we're writing letters, we don't have to spell out all the cultural baggage that goes with that. It's just assumed. I also talked about how most of his letters were written by a scribe, um, so he didn't handwrite them. 
And uh, either the scribe or someone else then took that letter to the church in question and read it in one of their gatherings and was there to answer any questions about the letter, to clarify any points they might be confused about, and to use that letter to teach from. Wouldn't that be great to have somebody come along and tell us what Paul meant by his letters today? We don't have that luxury. And lastly, I noted that the letter to the Romans is unique. Paul hadn't been there. So all the other letters were written to people who he had lived among, he'd worked as a tent maker with, he'd planted that church. All these churches were small, and, but not the Romans. He'd never been there. He knew some of them. Some of them knew him or of him. But he didn't have that basis of relationship that he had with all the other letters. And so this is a much more carefully written letter. It's a letter of introduction. He's after something. He wants their support for his missionary trip into Spain. And, well, in the state that they are, they're not in a position to be able to offer that help. So I said that there are a number of um, scholars who would suggest that uh, rather than there being a church in Rome, so we often talk about Paul's letter to the church in Rome, that there were in fact a number of churches, small house churches. And some of those house churches were Jewish, uh, so they understood that to be a Christian, you had to be uh, a Jew or at least um, have been brought into the Jewish fold, that you were circumcised if you were a male, and that you followed Torah, and they could not conceive of being a Christian any other way. And then there were Gentile house churches who could not understand why you would have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Now, those are quite sizable differences. Like we think our differences today about homosexuality, I've read people say, this is the largest issue that's ever faced the church. And I go, not by a long shot. So this is a much bigger issue. Do you have to be a Jew to be a Christian? And so Paul is writing his letter, hoping that he can help them overcome these significant differences. He wants them to focus on what unites them rather than what divides them. And if they can come together, if they can focus on what unites them, then they will be in a position to help them. They are of no use to him when they're busy fighting about these, he's not belittling those issues, they're big issues, but because they're fighting about them, they're of no use to him, and they're of no use to the mission of God. So he wants to unite them. So what on earth could help them overcome those differences? Well, that's what Paul's letter to the Romans is all about. What will unite them? So he begins his letter... Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we gave through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all Gentiles for the sake of his name, 
including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So this is pretty standard style for Paul's time. You began a letter by saying who you are, a formal letter. So that's what he's doing. It's an extension of that. Most of you wouldn't go on for quite so long. But he is trying to make a point. And he's kind of laying out in this opening sentence, and it's a long sentence, who he is, and in fact, what this letter is about. The key word in there is gospel of God. In fact, the whole letter is about that one thing, the gospel of God. Uh, in it, Paul describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. So last week I talked about how actually that term apostle was a formal term, and it was reserved for the twelve, and uh, Matthias was the twelfth elected by lot, and that was done by a council, uh, and the criteria was that you had to have known the, the Jesus while he was alive, and while he was risen, you're supposed to have experienced the risen Jesus. And Paul is saying, on the road to Damascus, I experienced the risen Jesus. So, he is saying the risen Jesus is still about, and that he experienced him, and that allows him to be called, well, that in that calling he was called to be an apostle. That was not a term that was accepted by everyone. Lots of people did not see him as an apostle. But he understood that he was one of the apostles, one of the twelve. And that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And then he continues, To all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we go this morning. We quoted a little bit of Paul at the beginning of our service. And we do that every time we use page 404. In fact, most of our liturgy comes from Scripture, and you could kind of dive through and work out where most of it comes from. I've read some people, they go, oh, it's all man-made, they should just use the Bible. And it's like, it, it is the Bible. Do you not know where this liturgy comes from? So, the key term in all of this is Gospel of God, and it's this term that summarizes what the story of what God has done. The story that Paul believes should help the churches of Rome overcome their serious differences and unite them to support his mission. And the rest of the letter is about this story. And that is where we so often go wrong with Paul's letter to the Romans. We keep thinking that he is a systematic theologian and that he's trying to lay out a system of theology about how this Jesus event works. Paul was not a systematic theologian. They didn't exist. It's not around, I don't know, Aquinas maybe. So he's the 1200s. You could call him a systematic theologian. 1200. For the first 1200 years, people weren't interested in laying out systematically how all the theology. They were interested in pastoral theology. They were interested in helping people think about the Jesus event in a way that would change their behaviour. So, Paul is doing that, just as the Gospel writers did this, by telling a story. It's a story. And if we get that in our heads, we can then actually see what Paul is doing. Systematic theologians go, well, this bit 
These three chapters, they're not very important. We'll get rid of those because they don't really fit his system. It's not his system. He doesn't have a system. It's their system that they're trying to put on Romans. So he is trying to tell a story, a grand story, the big story. The big story he is telling is the story of creation and fall of God's covenant with Abraham and then the Hebrew people. And through them, that through them, God would restore all humanity and renew creation. He's telling the story of God's enduring faithfulness to this covenant. And how this covenant was fulfilled in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel of God is how this covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus. He's a Jew. They understand everything in terms of the covenant between themselves and God. And the covenant is about the renewal of creation and the restoration of humanity through the faithfulness of the Hebrew people. That is what the covenant is about That is what Paul understands this to be all about. That is how he understands the Jesus story. So he goes on, and and these are the uh, key verses, and many people say you should just keep going back to these because these kind of hold the key to understanding Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So the NRSV says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greeks. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Or as the message says, It's news I'm most proud to proclaim. This extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts him. Starting with Jews and then right on to everyone else. God's way of putting people right shows up in the acts of faith, confirming what Scripture has said all along. The person in right standing before God by trusting Him really lives. So the two key words in this passage are righteousness and faith. Now all of this is written in Greek, so when the translators translate from Greek into English... Their theology actually influences how they translate this. And when they translated this, they have Martin Luther's great uh, proclamation for the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith. So that kind of in some ways has shaped how they have translated the Greek word for faith as faith. But actually there are a whole lot of other options that could have equally been used there. So every time we do translation, well, not not me, but when people do translation, their theology helps them decide their understanding of what that letter is about, what what Paul is saying. That shapes what words they use. And then that then shapes everyone else's understanding of what that says. So, and this is equally true here. Because there are a number of people that say... Faith might not have been the best word to use there. So let's have a little look. Let's start with righteousness of God. So there are a number of people, well, how do we understand the word righteousness? So I've talked about this earlier this year. Righteousness often means to be upright, doesn't it? So I'm righteous when I'm upright, when I'm moral, when I'm a good person, I am righteous. 
We often understand righteousness like that. And so when we think about the righteousness of God, that becomes quite confusing. And so often this is understood as the righteousness that God gives us through Jesus Christ. So I'm not upright, I can't be in God's presence, so God gives me uprightness so that I can be in God's presence. Often understood in this way. But the people I've read, including people like N.T. Wright, say that is a complete misunderstanding of what is going on here. This is a legal terminology that's being used here. And the righteousness of God is God as judge. So when God is judged, the righteousness is, I am impartial as God, and I will decide between you. And I am faithful to the law and will uphold the law. So the righteousness of God is not given to anyone. The righteousness of God belongs to God alone. And the righteousness of God in this place is God's faithfulness and God's impartiality and God's justice. So this just stays with God. So what is God faithful to? The covenant. So if we read the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, throughout all of that, God is faithful to the covenant. God never backs away from the covenant. And so when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he is talking about God's faithfulness. Not God's faith, but God's faithfulness to the covenant. Never, never backing away from that. We have to keep remembering that Paul is a Jew. He sees the world through Jewish eyes. So he sees all this in terms of the covenant. He didn't stop being a Jew on the road to Damascus. He just radically rethought how God was working out the covenant. So the righteousness of God always refers to God's faithfulness to the covenant. Always. And through that, God's impartiality and God's justice. As one of the authors I read said, God's ongoing cosmic restorative justice at work in the world. It is all about God's work restoring right relationships between God and humanity, humanity and God, and humanity and creation. So the big story, the big story that Paul is telling is all about God's righteousness and all about God's covenant faithfulness. So the letter to the Romans is a letter all about God's faithfulness to the covenant and Israel's lack of faithfulness. Again and again, they were not faithful to the covenant. And so the covenant could never be fulfilled because Israel, the means by which the covenant would be fulfilled, Israel was not faithful. Now, this puts Torah, law, into a whole new light, doesn't it? Torah isn't a means by which we become morally upright and therefore deserving of whatever God is going to do with us. Torah was the means by which the people of God would be faithful to the covenant. They could reciprocate the faithfulness of God with their own faithfulness. Torah would be the means by which covenant would be fulfilled. But Israel... 
was drawn away from Torah. So in today's reading, we heard Paul talking about how his mind wants to keep the Torah, but his members keep drawing him away. It's all about the unfaithfulness. Torah was supposed to keep them faithful, but for a whole lot of reasons, it didn't. It didn't work. If anything, it helped them be unfaithful because it pointed out all the things they shouldn't be doing if they were faithful to the covenant. And they went, hmm, that sounds quite interesting. Maybe I'll give that a go, as we all know how that happens. So, and instead of being faithful to the covenant, they ended up worshipping false gods, including the false god of entitlement and self-important, rendering them as equally under judgment of God as the Gentiles. So that's a little point to the Jewish Christians saying, well, you know, we're the Jewish Christians, so we're the really important ones. And Paul's going, not really. You're equally under judgment, whether you keep Torah or not. Because God is impartial. God is the judge. So how then does God remain faithful to the covenant and the purpose of covenant in the light of this unfaithfulness? And that brings us to the second word, faith. And this word we can find in that second sentence, for it is in the righteousness of God, revealed through faith, for faith. Which is a little confusing. But what happens if we change it a little bit? What happens if it is, for it, in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faithfulness, for faithfulness? It's an equally valid translation. And if it becomes that, then it's about the faithfulness of Jesus to the covenant in response to the faithfulness of God to the covenant. So it's not about too often faith becomes, and it has become, believing the right things, like with our heads, cognitively, intellectually, we believe certain things about God, and when we believe those certain things about God, something is going to happen, usually we're going to get into heaven. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about an intellectual activity. He's not talking about believing the right things. He is talking about faithfulness to God. And so God, Paul is saying there needed to be a Hebrew who was faithful to the covenant even to death. And Jesus is the Jew who is faithful to the covenant. His faithfulness, even to death, fulfills the requirement of the covenant. And when Jesus died on the cross, then all the powers who put him there, all the false gods, all the gods of self-importance, all the gods of entitlement, all the other gods that people worship, that we worship, they put them up there and thought they'd won and danced. At that moment, they were defeated because they did not defeat God. And then when Jesus rose, the victory was assured. God said, this is the one. This is the way. Faithfulness was rewarded by faithfulness. So the word is not faith, what well, can be. But it's better understood as faithfulness. So, so what? I mean, that's a good question. That all sounds very interesting, John. But what are we supposed to do with that? 
While Paul wanted his hearers in the churches in Rome to see themselves as part of that story. Not outside of that story, but inside the story. He wanted them to see that the story was not over. That it was still being worked out. And he wanted this story to shape how those Jews and those Jewish Christians and those Gentiles Christians who were part of the house churches, he wanted this story to shape how they saw the world. Now all of us, all of us use stories to understand who we are and our place in the world. A big part of therapy is helping people get to kind of tease out the stories that they use to kind of understand themselves and their place in the world and to see how toxic those stories have become and to change those stories. And we can see these stories at work. Donald Trump has this story in his head that he is an amazing person. He is the most successful businessman ever. Everything he has done has been amazingly successful. He's only ever helped people. He is the most popular president ever. And he is only trying to help people. And if anyone says anything different to that, well, he just says that's lies, fake news. Because it doesn't fit the story in his head. Now, he's an extreme example. But we all have those stories running through our head. And groups of people have those those stories running through their heads. America truly believes that they are the greatest nation on earth and that everything they do is for freedom and democracy. And that when they overthrow democratically elected governments, when they're involved in that, that's fine because clearly those democratically elected governments weren't for freedom and democracy and needed to be replaced by military dictatorships. So that's how they understand that. And in our country... We have this new story, well it's about 100 years old now, that New Zealanders are white and they speak English. And so when people come here, they should you know, behave like us, speak English. That's what New Zealanders do. Which, you know, for Māori is a little offensive. And given 170 years ago to be called a New Zealander meant that you were Māori and you spoke te reo Māori, that story has changed. It's become a different story. So we understand ourselves in terms of that, oh, well, we're New Zealanders, and then everyone else we call by different terms. So that's the story that we understand ourselves by. All of us have these stories. In my work as a spiritual director and a supervisor, a big chunk of my work is actually helping people notice the story in their heads, which is, I have to work hard to be good enough. Good enough for God good enough for other people, good enough for myself. Now most of the people have worked out that actually that's not a great story, but it's really hard to let go of. Because they have spent their lives trying to be good enough. Paul is saying to us, all these stories, all these stories, are of no value. Here's a better story. Here is a story that will help you shape your identity, understand who you are, invite you to be faithful to the covenant and be involved in God's mission. Use this story to shape your identity. So last week, 
The last, two, uh, last week of the week before was chapter 6, which was all about baptism. He is saying in baptism we are baptised into a new story. Forget the old stories. Forget the old stories of culture. Forget the old stories of tribal allegiance. Forget the old stories by which you understood yourself. Here is the new story. You are part of God's covenant community. God has been eternally faithful to this covenant. In Jesus, the covenant is fulfilled through his faithfulness. And now you are called to be equally faithful to the covenant as part of this community. Because the work is done. And through you, God will continue to restore creation and renew humanity. That's the story we are to shape our identity by. As individuals, as churches. That's what it's all about. So this story that Paul is telling, it's a really important story. Because if they get that story, then those house churches might come together and they might say, we're still a bit different, we're not sure about each other, but we will, as part of God's covenant community, be faithful to that covenant and we will support your mission. And the invitation is there for us as well. Are we willing to be part of this faithful covenant community and to understand ourselves and what we are doing by this story? Well, next week I'm away, so you get a break from Paul. And Mari's going to be here doing Sea Sundays, so I'm sure you'll hear lots about sea stuff, seafarers' missions, and what they're doing at the Tauranga Port and around the world. And in two weeks' time, we'll be back, and we'll almost be caught up with where we are in Paul, maybe. We'll have to do some more catching up, but that's where we're up to with Paul.